Good morning, everyone, and let me add my welcome to you. And my thanks to Pete for helping to lead us in our worship this morning. Let me invite you to turn back to that passage which was read for us earlier from Judges chapter 3. If your Bible is like mine, then you'll find as you read through the text of the Bible that as well as the text being divided into the standard chapters and verses, the publisher has also broken down the text into different sections and each little section is given its own title. They do that, of course, simply as a means of reference and as a help as we search through the Bible, help us to spot particular stories and themes throughout the text of Scripture. Now, we're going to begin in Judges chapter 3 at verse 7. And following the introduction to the book of Judges in the opening two chapters, as we're introduced to the first of those judges, Othniel, in verse 7 of chapter 3, that little section could be given the title, And So Judges Goes Like This. So that's actually what we'll call our first point in verses 7 to 11. As the judge Othniel is introduced to us. And so judges goes like this. Because with this very concise account, you'll find all the components which will feature throughout the book. The, the circumstances will change, the, the enemies and the afflictions that Israel face will change. The judges who God appoints will differ. The way in which God uses those judges will differ. And because of that, there are many new and different lessons that you can learn as you progress through the book. But you'll discover that all the basic components are actually the same. And so using verses 7 to 11, let's take a look at them. Well, first of all, what we see in the text is Israel's sin and God's anger. You see that from verse 7. God's anger is hot against them as they do evil in God's sight. And, and Christian people, what we see is that God, though he loves you with an everlasting and a superabounding love, to use the kind of language that the Apostle Paul uses in the New Testament, though he loves you, God is angry when you sin. Even as a Christian, you displease him. When you sin. In the case of Israel, we see there that it's a spiritual infidelity. It's, it's like a spouse being unfaithful to their husband or their wife. It's, it's if you like, it's a, a spiritual adultery towards and against God. It's the worship of false gods and false idols instead of worshipping God. Now, whilst all sin is sin, the Bible nevertheless makes it clear that some sins are more serious than others. Stealing from a sweet shop, even just taking one sweet, is, is sin. And he who stole 
should steal no more. But to commit murder would be much worse. To go into the sweet shop and take one sweet would not be considered as serious as going into the sweet shop and taking the life of the person standing behind the counter. In the Old Testament civil law for Israel, there were degrees of punishments according to the degree of the sin. Some sins, the most heinous crimes, carried the death penalty. Not all sins did, not all crimes carried that penalty, but the really serious ones did. Sexual immorality is included alongside things like murder in that regard. The breaking of covenants, which is what you do if you're unfaithful to a marriage partner. Those kinds of things are very serious in God's eyes. God is a covenant God. God is a God who keeps covenant with his people and who asks his people to keep covenant with him in return. The breaking of covenant with him, the turning aside to idolatry, spiritually speaking, it really doesn't get much worse than that. And the result is that God's anger is hot against them. Friends, sin is serious. And if you're a Christian, giving yourself continuously and consistently to God's ongoing work of sanctification in your life is so very important. And please note that whilst I said you must give yourself to it, I also acknowledge that it is nevertheless God's work in you. It is God's work of sanctification within you that you must give yourself to. It's because it is God's doing that you, by his grace and with his power, may give yourself to it at all and make progress. Any unsaved friends who are listening, sin is serious. So serious that God the Father was willing to send his only begotten Son and to give him as the once for all sacrifice for sins by the shedding of his blood, that whosoever believes on him might not perish in their sins, but instead be forgiven and pardoned and have in Christ everlasting life. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and you need him as your saviour. So we see Israel's sin and God's anger in these opening verses, but then secondly, we see Israel's circumstances and God's sovereign will. We read there that God gives them up to this Mesopotamian king. It was God's doing. Kushan Rishathaim, no doubt he thought that this was all his own doing, but it wasn't. God has done precisely what he said he would do. What has happened to Israel is exactly what God said would happen if they did what they've gone and done. God makes and orders this world's history. 
you must see here that God is acting like this towards Israel because of his love for them. Ultimately, this action of God in giving Israel into the hands of this pagan king, it's designed by God to be the means by which he might restore them. It's an unpleasant consequence of their sin. Unpleasant consequences often follow in the path of sins. But God has not given up on them. But what he doesn't do here is permit them to thrive and prosper in their sin. Now, in response to that, you might say, but Ian, many people today do seem to thrive and prosper in their sin. Uh, To which I would say, yes, that's true. In certain ways. But only in certain ways. And only for a limited time. But do remember, eternity is looming. And eternity, when we enter into it, is preceded by perfect judgment and justice. It's appointed for all men and women once to die, and after that, the judgment. And then we enter into either eternal rest or eternal torment. And eternity under that divine judgment is very long. Keep that truth in your thinking as you look around you at the world. And as you look at all of its successful people, remember what it is that you have in Christ and just how long that's going to last for. And it's only going to get better. Back to Israel. We see that God will not hesitate to bring misery upon his people if it serves his will and purposes. Because remember, it will only be for a time and it's going to be followed by a far surpassing glory. But if you don't understand, if you can't grasp this fact that God sometimes will take his people through misery, then you'll find yourself quite frustrated and perplexed at times when you need not be. And God will do it for different reasons. He did it to his own son, didn't he? Didn't he cause Christ to be the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief? He did it to many people in the early church. He did it to many during the time of the Reformation, for example. For your salvation, Christ must become the man of sorrows. For the furtherance of the gospel, Paul must be flogged and stoned and imprisoned. For the re-establishing of biblical godly faith and the authority of the word of God, 500 years ago, men and women must be burned at the stake. For the cause of Christ under, Christ under communism, Richard Wormbrand must be thrown into prison. And of course, tens of thousands more like them through the generations. And you won't hear that 
from your prosperity, word of faith, so-called gospel preachers. But God also brings misery upon his people because of their sin. As Dale Ralph Davis puts it in his commentary, God will not allow them to become cosy in their infidelity. And he wants them back. With all of the Bible open in front of us, being able to see the whole picture as we can, what a wonderful God this is actually, even though he's putting them for a time into a place of misery. He could have just washed his hands of them right there and then. Forget this. Leave them to it. Let's try and start again with someone else. But no. This God is angry over their sin, but he is also the loving God of covenant and faithfulness and mercy and grace. And he's going to demonstrate that. But first comes misery because of their sin. And then thirdly in this section, we we see and hear Israel in that misery and God's response. Israel's misery and God's response. They cried out to the Lord, verse 9. Now we mustn't assume that that means that it was a cry of repentance. If anything, the Hebrew word that is used there most likely describes a cry of misery and pain, not sorrow and repentance. God heard and saw their misery and he's moved to help them. In his anger, he still loves them because they are still his people. He is still God. And this reveals so much of the nature of God in his long-suffering and his loving-kindness. He won't continue in his anger against them indefinitely. And he doesn't continue uh, in his long-suffering towards us in our sins indefinitely either. There is a final day of judgment coming. A day when this world as we know it will be no more. There'll be a new heaven and earth wherein righteousness dwells. But for a time, God continues in long-suffering and loving-kindness even while we are in our sins. And he does so for far longer than we would dare to hope for. He certainly does it far longer than you or I would. But that is God in the perfection of his glorious attributes. And in his long-suffering and loving-kindness towards them, though he is angry with them, he loves them and he moves. And he moves to deliver them from their misery. And he places them under King Cushan-Rishathaim. But we notice that it's God who's ordering all of these things. The Lord raised up a deliverer who delivered them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel. He went out to war and the Lord delivered the king of Mesopotamia into his hand. The Lord sold them into the hand of this king. The Lord delivered them into Othniel's hand, the Moabites that is. 
the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, by his Spirit. And nothing has changed. That's how it still is today. So, with the story that we've been thinking about with our children, when Eli would receive from young Samuel God's judgment upon his two wicked sons, what will Eli say? It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Of the rise and fall of this Mesopotamian king in Judges chapter 3, another little comment of Dale Ralph Davis He says something we do well to remember in our own day, whatever our political views are. He says this, No one wears the political pants of history unless Yahweh issues them to them. And that's why I think the New Testament apostles and the early church, for the most part, they seem to largely disregard national and political issues of their day. God is taking care of all that. That's in his hands. We've got a gospel to preach and believers to teach. So let's get on with that. Seems to be their main thrust and aim and focus. And I'm sure that needs to be true for us today. And in our text in Judges, we see that God grants the people rest What we understand by that is that it actually means a time nationally of peace, a lack of conflict or oppression from other peoples. God has put them into misery as a consequence of their sins so that they might see that sin results in misery. It's not a pleasant place to be. It's not a good place to be. The misery that comes with sin Well, it may come now, it may come immediately, it may come later, but it will come. Will they learn that lesson? Will their misery bring them to repentance? Will it bring them to the proper honour and worship of God? It should. God has delivered them in his loving kindness, moved by their misery, Will God's faithfulness and loving kindness towards them, will that bring them to repentance and to the proper honour and worship of God? Because that should. Will 40 years of rest keep them faithful? Will it keep them in the proper honour and worship of God? That should. Sadly, it won't. And so Judges goes like this. And the story continues from from verse 12 of chapter 3, where secondly, this morning, we're introduced to the lefty from Benjamin. Benjamin, of course, being the tribe that Ehud comes from. Firstly, If you scan through those verses from 12 through to 30, you'll notice that those same basic components that we saw in the story of Othniel are all present here. Israel's sin and the Lord bringing affliction against them, this time by the hand of King Eglon of Moab, 
who God strengthened against them. There it is in verse 12. The Lord again hears the cry of his people and raises up for them a deliverer, verse 15. The Lord delivers the Moabites into their hand, verse 28, and they enjoy rest once more, verse 30, this time for 80 years, double the 40 from previously. But to get to that rest, well, we, we have there this schoolboys and probably some schoolgirls' favourite story of Ehud and Eglon. A left-handed man is chosen. Maybe God chose a left-handed man because a right-handed man would never have been able to do what Ehud did. Most people are right-handed. Uh, I'm a little bit strange, you, you know that, of course, but strange in this sense that I do most things right-handed. I play sports right-handed, but I actually write with my left hand. I'm not quite sure why that is. Most people are either strictly right or left-handed, aren't they? Most, pe most people are right-handed. Therefore, most soldiers are right-handed. And in the days of swords and daggers, they would always have their weapons sheathed on the left-hand side, around the waist or on the thigh. They did that so that in one smooth movement, you could cross your right hand across your body, draw out your weapon and immediately be in a position to attack or defend yourself. Much more smooth and easy than trying to fiddle with something on this side, the same side of your body. Much easier just to reach across and, and draw it. So if you were a foreigner or an enemy entering a palace to go into the presence of the king, you would almost certainly be patted down on your left-hand side to check that you weren't carrying any weapons because it was on that left-hand side that they would expect those weapons to be held or carried or sheathed. But Maybe they wouldn't bother to pat down the right-hand side of your body. Who carries a dagger on their right thigh? Well, Ehud the lefty, that's who. Because instead of drawing from the left with his right, he will draw from the right with his left. And we see in verse 16 that Ehud had made himself a dagger. Uh, I like to muse over little details like that. Was this because he wasn't actually a fighting man and didn't possess a dagger of his own? Not only was he left-handed, but he was actually daggerless. Well, we don't know, but it would add another layer of intrigue into the story if that's the case. Uh, what an unlikely and on the face of it unsuitable choice he would have been, not only left-handed, but not even owning a weapon. Or perhaps he knew exactly what he was doing and he custom made this dagger just for the job. All 18 inches of it, that's 45 centimetres to those of you who are in uh, the modern world. Uh, a cubit is elbow to fingertips on an adult forearm, about 18 inches, 45 centimetres. 
Perhaps he knew only too well what the physical stature of this King Eglon was like. Perhaps his size was well known. And he knew maybe exactly what he was going to do with this dagger and precisely where he was going to leave it. Well, whichever it was, Ehud's God's chosen man and off he goes to see King Eglon. In order to gain entrance to the king, he arrives with a tribute, a gift, and probably a substantial gift, because we read in verse 18 that there's a group of fellow Israelites who've carried it. So it's probably quite substantial. And as they're leaving Ehud, as they're leaving Eglon, Ehud turns back and returns to the king. Now, having already received a generous gift from Ehud, Eglon perhaps has let his guard down. Perhaps he's not as suspicious as he might otherwise have been. He's more ready perhaps to dismiss all his courtiers so that he can listen in private to what this secret message is that God says Ehud has given him to deliver to the king. And then the, the well-known and gory deed of verses 21 to 22 takes place as Eglon's entourage wait outside his private quarters and they wait some time and they're assuming that uh, their king is relieving himself and uh, sorting himself out and while they're waiting Ehud makes his escape and he's able to rally his troops and they're able to defeat a considerable Moabite army 10,000 Moabites who were told that, <coughs> told that they are stout men of valour. In other words, these are not rookie novices. This is a considerable, tested fighting force. But it's the Lord who has delivered them. Now... These shenanigans with Ehud and Eglon, as some people might perceive them, all this blood and guts, literally, in this case, this all might seem difficult to reconcile with a God of grace and truth and loving kindness, maybe. But you need to remember, as we saw in our introduction to this series, these tribes and nations in Canaan were desperately wicked people. They were sinful people. Their deaths was not unjust. It's very important to remember that. In God's eyes, this was the due punishment for their sins. Now, yes, God chose to use them as his instruments in his dealings with Israel. And that might seem a little strange to us, but it's entirely God's prerogative to do that. He is God. He doesn't do things the way we might expect him to do. And in like manner, you know, who he may or may not choose to use today. It's not always for us to question, is it? How and when God chooses to bring upon sinners the, the judgment that their sins deserve. That is God's call. 
Only, only he decides such things. What we do know is that all sin will be judged. All sin will be punished. And all of his judgments will be right and true and just. And even in that, God is glorified. He's glorified in the strength and the might of his wisdom and his holiness and his righteous power as he moves against sinfulness and sinners. And what we take great encouragement from in this story is that even here in the midst of all of this gory mess, God has not forsaken his people. He's heard their cry. He responds to their misery again. He overthrows their foes and delivers them again. He's already done it once with Othniel. And then they've fallen into the same sins. But God remains faithful to them. And of course, we, we see in these judges whom God is appointing uh, as this series of judges now begins to unfold, that the deliverance that each judge is able to bring is only ever short-lived and temporary. Because, of course, the one thing they cannot do is change the heart of the people. If only there could be a man who could bring lasting deliverance and a change of heart. Well, he's coming, teaches the Old Testament scriptures. One who, as John the Baptist put it, will baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. One who's able to change you on the inside. You need one who can deliver you forever from your sins. There's only one man who can do that. And that's the man who is God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we've considered Othniel, we've considered Ehud. And then as the chapter draws to a close at verse 31, we're introduced to just one third judge, Shamgar. And he won't be the only judge of Israel who receives the briefest of mentions. And it shows us thirdly and finally that actually it's about God, not the man. Now as you read there about uh, Shamgar, in case you're wondering, an ox goad was a long, strong stick with a pointy end. And you would use it to prod and poke cattle in order to move them on and direct them as you were herding them. And that's the weapon that Shamgar was able to use to kill all of those men. Now, if you are God's man or woman in God's place, in God's time, you don't need the latest piece of military hardware. An ox goad will do for Shamgar. The jawbone from a donkey will fit nicely in the mighty hand of Samson. And the biggest, baddest warrior hero of the Philistines can be felled with one blow by a teenage shepherd boy hurling one pebble from a sling.
Now, whilst the fine detail about Shamgar is not recorded in the Bible, you can be certain that those same components which we've identified earlier will all still have been there. And he delivered Israel. But it's about God, not the man. It's God's doing. It's not about the man. It's not about the woman. Shamgar gets one verse. The next judge has two whole chapters and she is Deborah. It's about God. It's not about the man or the woman. And do you remember Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Christians in churches in his day were lining themselves up behind certain pastors and teachers, as if anyone would do that today. In chapter 3 of that letter, Paul describes such behaviour as worldliness. It is carnal, he says. The world loves to have heroes to worship and follow, whether it's a football team or a philosopher or a scientist or a musician or a political figure or whoever. And they, they hero worship and they do so instead of worshipping and following God. This worship of heroes, the cult of hero worship, is ungodly worldliness. The Bible says so. And it's found in churches and amongst churches, or it can be. You see, some Christian maybe a pastor or preacher, whether they're still alive or whether they're from history. You see what you believe to have been a great blessing from God through the life and work and ministry of that individual, and in many cases you'd be right, it was a great blessing from God. But you allow yourself to come to the conclusion that there were certain things about that person which were responsible for it. The way they look, the way they sound, the certain gift they had, the way they preach, the way they talk, the way they stand. That's what made the difference. And so today, well, I'm looking for someone with all of those same qualities, all of those same characteristics, because that's what achieves those results. I'm for Paul, some were saying in New Testament days. Apollos for me, says another. Give me Peter over either of them any day, says this one over here. Perhaps in the day of the judges. Othniel for me, no, another Ehud is who we need. Are you both crazy? Shamgar, someone like Shamgar is who we need. We see in these passages in the Judges, again and again, we're reading it's the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Paul in the New Testament says the same. It's not down to me. It's not down to Apollos. It's not down to Peter. One has sown, one waters, one, one reaps. But it is God, it is God, it is God who gives the increase. You don't pray for another man or woman like that. You pray to God. 
you look to God, that he would be at work in someone, in anyone. Because as long as it is of him, he will accomplish all that he wills to accomplish. Because as it was in the day of the judges, it's all down to the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Let him do as seems good to him. Let him do it to me, whatever that may be. Let him do it to you, whatever that may require of you. Let God do with Belvedere Road Church as he would do with us, whatever that requires of us. Let him be for us our deliverer. Let him be the one in whom we put our trust. Let us give ourselves wholly to him. That it, well, certainly for one thing, that it may never be said of us that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. God forbid that that should ever be true of us. And that all may see that in whatever we do, from the smallest thing to the greatest thing, whether it's something that gets written down in history books or whether it's completely forgotten and overlooked, that we are the Lord's people that have given ourselves wholly unto him for his praise, for his glory, that he might do in and through us that which he has purposed to do that each of us might know the Lord Jesus Christ as our great deliverer, our saviour, our Lord, our strength.